Well, again, good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of Titus and to chapter 3 as we come today to our final study in this wonderful little book. There are many good experiences in this life and a lot of not-so-good experiences as well. One negative experience I hope you haven't had to go through is experiencing a crime scene firsthand. Uh, some of you may have been through that, but uh, even if you haven't, uh, most of us have a pretty good idea what happens at a crime scene because we have TV and we have movies. We know that uh, when, they, when the authorities come to a crime scene, they put out the little yellow tape, you know, do not enter. They, um, they start looking around trying to find evidence to identify the perpetrator so they can convict them of the crime. Of course, one of the first things they are looking for as they go around with their little, all their stuff is they start looking for fingerprints. Fingerprints, those unique impressions that all of us leave, the little marks all of us leave when we touch stuff. Our fingerprint is evidence that we were in a certain place or touched a particular object. This morning as we wrap up our study here in the book of Titus, we're going to look at what I believe will serve a bit like a fingerprint for us as a follower of Jesus Christ. An evidence an impression, an identifiable mark that every Christian, every follower of Christ should leave in our path as we go through life. It's actually a characteristic that has been a theme that has been running through the whole book of Titus as we've gone along through this study. It's been running like an underground stream just under the surface and every so often it pokes up above the surface and then it disappears back underneath for a bit. What is that theme? It pops up one last time here in these closing verses, the last four verses of Titus. I hope you'll follow along in your Bibles as I read starting in verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See to it that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Here amidst the personal greetings and instructions that Paul gives to different folks in the church, this important and recurring theme pops up again. But in case you didn't see what it is, let me just review some of the other times in this little letter that it's, it's shown itself already. Back up in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul writes about elders and he says they are to be a lover of good. Elders are to be men who love what is good. A few verses later, verse 16, chapter 1, Paul writes about false teachers. 
he says that they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Chapter 2, verse 3, he's addressing the older women and he says they are to teach what is good and specifically he means they are to teach younger women what they are to do with their families at home. Verse 7 of chapter 2, Titus is told, show yourself an example in all respects to be a model of good works. Chapter 2, verse 14 He's speaking of Jesus and says, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all, un, from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possessions who are zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1, Titus is instructed, remember or remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and be ready for every good work. Verse 8 of chapter 3, Paul says to Titus, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Finally, in the passage I just read in verse 14, chapter 3, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Did you catch the theme? Could you miss it? All the way through this book, the focus has, or not the focus, but an underlying focus has been good works. Paul is letting us know that the Christian life is to be a life of active goodness. Not just a passive goodness as in avoiding evil, as in not doing bad things. Certainly we're, we're to not do bad things, we're to not do evil but it is to be actively doing good. Actively demonstrating the love of Christ. Actively showing deference and kindness and doing good to others. So the first point I want to make this morning is we're being reminded here in this passage and all the way through the book, we are to do good works. Good works are not just an optional add-on for Christians. Rather, it's to be a key part, an essential element of who we are and what we do as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, I have to say, and I'm, I'm sure you all know this, but I, I have to, to make sure that I say it, that we know that no amount of good works, no matter how many, no matter how big, none of them can make up for our sin. None of them can earn forgiveness from sin or earn eternal life in heaven. Can't be done by good works. Salvation from sin, eternal life, only can be received as a gift from God through faith in Jesus Christ. It says up in chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul has already made that clear. He says, For the grace of God has appeared which brings salvation to all men, for all people. In chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us not because of works that we have done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. In other words, our being saved has nothing to do with how good we are, how, how worthy we are, how many good deeds we do. It's all about God's grace. It's all about His mercy that saves us. 
That's why, by the way, as we begin to to celebrate the Christmas season, why it is such a joyful celebration. John 3.16, the verse we know so well. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. See, the message of the Gospel is not be good, people. It's not do good, do good deeds. That's not the message of the Gospel. The message of the Gospel is not go make the world a better place. The message of the Gospel is believe in Jesus Christ. Trust Him as your Savior. But when we truly trust Jesus, we will do good. Make no mistake, the Bible is very clear. It's clear here in Titus and the rest of Scriptures. Everyone who believes, everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ will be changed. And the clear evidence, the fingerprints, as it were, of a true believer in Jesus Christ is a life of good works. Good works then matter. In our text here in Titus, we find several reasons why good works are significant, why they are important, why they matter. We just read here in verse 13 of chapter 3, it says, Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See to it that they lack nothing. Honestly, the truth is, we really have no idea who Zenos is. And Apollos shows up a few other places in Scripture, but it's interesting, they just pop on the page here in this little letter, and we don't know really anything about where they're coming from, where they're going, when they got there, if they're there yet, or they're still on their way, whether they came together or whether they came separately, whether they're leaving together or leaving separately. All he says is, whenever they are there, Do whatever you can to speed them on their way. What is clear is that certainly they are on some mission for Christ. And Paul says, you, church, need to meet whatever their needs are. See to it, he says, that they lack nothing. We don't even know what it is they might lack. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's clothing. Maybe it is resources, money. Maybe it's a place to stay for a while. Maybe it is spiritual encouragement. Maybe it is prayer. But whatever it is, make sure they're not lacking a thing. Good works, this is one important aspect of good works for you and me as believers, is to partner, to to join together with those who are busy in the mission of Christ. That's why it's a blessing to be a part of what Coulter and Anna Brown are doing. It's a blessing to be a part of, and and Coulter was saying, we share a part in in what is happening in the work in South America through our partnership. We are sharing in the work that is going on in the southern Philippines on Paradise Island with our brother John and sister Hannah. We share a part in what God is doing in Mongolia in the little town of Tatsensengel where... We partner with the Phillips. 
We share a part of what God is doing in among refugees in Greece as refugees are coming to Christ through the, the ministry. We share a part. And so I am so grateful that this church has that vision that we consider it significant and important to partner with those who are busy about the work of the kingdom, carrying the gospel of Jesus to places that you and I cannot go personally, but we get to share in a part of it. What a blessing. It's a priority here at the chapel. And Paul says to Titus, it's a, part, it's a priority for this church with these two dear servants of Christ. Secondly, good works matter not only because they advance God's kingdom work, but in verse 14 it says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need. You and I as believers in Jesus Christ should help those with urgent needs. And they happen around us all the time. People go through fires, they go through floods, they have health problems, natural disasters, they lose their job. And we find people in crisis. When you and I step in with the love and grace of Christ and we, we meet needs, it has a powerful and a positive impact in their life because it meets genuine needs. It is to be a part of our good works as believers. Verse 14 continues and it says that we're to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Good works keep us from being unfruitful. Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus said this, a, a verse that most of us know pretty well. He says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. We have a great tendency, you and I, to get our focus on the wrong treasures. We are the wealthiest people on the planet as a people as a whole. Some of the wealthiest people to ever live on the earth. And the tendency for us with so much is to get our eyes and our focus on the stuff. And Jesus cautions against that. He says, don't lay up your treasures here because they will rust. They will, they will be destroyed. Moths will eat them. They will rot. They will rust. They can get stolen. And even at the very end when we die, we leave them all behind. Instead, he says, lay up treasures in heaven. The Apostle Paul, talking about that chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he's talking to believers and he reminds us of something that most of us don't think about nearly as often as we ought. He says there in chapter 3 that there is a day coming when our works, our the deeds that we do here in this body will be made manifest. They will be brought to light. They will be judged, he says, on that day of accounting. And he's talking to us as believers. He says they will be judged by fire. Verse 14 to 15 of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he says that at that 
at that accounting, at that judgment, if what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward. But if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So it is possible to be a believer in Jesus Christ and to go to heaven and yet in that judgment to have every deed, every thing that we have done in this life to be shown as worthless, unfruitful. To have a life that we lived long and we might have had a great fortune, we might have had a big house, we might have had uh, uh, bunches of nice cars and boats and we might have had, had you know, fame and be well-liked and well-respected by all kinds of people and had a life that in the end was a waste. To be saved and yet as one escaping through the flames, but yet having no treasure bringing along with. What a tragic picture. And the Apostle Paul tells us that's what reminds us that's what it is so that we take Jesus' words seriously and don't make our treasures here, but lay up our treasures in heaven. And the question comes up, how do I avoid a fruitless, wasted life? And the answer is right, quite simply right here in the text. He says, it is by good works, devoting ourselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Good works are the antidote for an unproductive, wasted life. Fourthly, going back into chapter 2 and verse 14, it says this, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Why do good works matter? Why are they important? Because they are God's desire for us. Mom, dad, if you're here or your parent this morning, you know that every one of us have dreams, have expectations for our kids. Things we desire for our kids to be and do, the way we want them to grow up. We have these dreams. Rightly or wrongly, sometimes we we try to push all kinds of things on our kids that we may be You know, it's really not what they are gifted to do or want to do. They're our expectations. But God is the perfect parent and He has a dream for what He wants us to be and do. Did you notice that? Jesus Christ gave Himself to redeem us out of sin, out of death, out of, as Peter says early in his little letter, 1 Peter out of the empty way of life handed down to us from our ancestors, Jesus has redeemed us to make a people for His own possession, to purify us for people of His own possession who are, and here it is, zealous for good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared us in advance, has prepared for us to do. Before you and I were ever born, 
God designed us, made us to do good works. He created us uniquely, I think, for unique things for us to do. He longs for us to be zealous. That means to be enthusiastic, to be eager, to be passionate about good works. Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher, said that God's end in election, His end in choosing you and me to save us, the, the end of all His purposes is not answered until they, that's God's people, become a people who are zealous of good works. God's dream for you, His aim for you, His ambition for you is not realized until you and I become a people who are zealous, enthusiastic about good work. There's a fifth reason why good works matter. Still in chap- back in chapter 2 in verse 10. Actually, several places in this letter, we've seen how our actions as believers, our actions impact the way that unbelievers view the gospel message, the good news of Jesus. If we are hypocrites, what we discover is that they repel others from the gospel message. They repel others from the truth. It gives them, he says, fuel for they can, they can malign, they can, they can assault, they can ridicule the good news of Jesus. Or it can have the impact as it does in verse 10 of chapter 2. The godly living and good deeds will in every way, it says, make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Good works matter because they make the Gospel attractive to unbelievers. Jesus said the same thing this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He said, In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Peter wrote similarly in Chapter 2, verse 12 of his first little letter, he said, live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. They may see your good deeds. They may not give you credit for it. Matter of fact, they may slander you and malign you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. For They'll say it for His name's sake, but on the day when He visits, when He returns, they will give glory to God because of your good deeds. How do you reach an island that is full of liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons? How do you reach them with the Gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ? How do you reach such folks who are antagonistic to Christianity and the Gospel? And how do you overcome those false teachers that we saw were there on Crete who are giving the the Christ Jesus a bad name? How do you overcome all that and reach people so that you are a church that doesn't just survive in a pagan place, but thrives in a pagan place? That we've seen is really the aim of this book. And and the, the message for them is the same then as it is for us today. How do we impact a godless culture, an antagonistic culture with the good news of Jesus Christ 
We do it through good works. We love them to Christ. We demonstrate the love and the compassion and the forgiveness and the kindness of Jesus as we interact with people. We love our enemies. We do good to those who persecute us. We help the hurting. We help the broken. We help the needy. And it's in that context when we share the Gospel of Jesus, they are willing to listen. They may not always acknowledge it, but the world is always watching to see how we who name ourselves by the name of Christ, how we live. A number of years ago, when uh, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, I took note of an article in the St. Louis newspaper, clipped it out. Faith builds, not FEMA. The article noted that the government spending and rebuilding uh, after Katrina, at least at the time of this article, it was big, it was significant. $53 billion were spent at the time this article came out. But even the Post-Dispatch could not escape another very amazing reality. It was shocking to them. The reality that churches and Christian agencies did more. Much, much, much more. They tallied it up. Over $600 billion worth of labor from Christians and Christian agencies, churches, on top of billions of dollars of materials and supplies and financial help. Christians demonstrated through their money and their muscle They demonstrated their faith and people noticed. You probably noticed as I did following Hurricane Harvey and all the news reports in those weeks and after the hurricane. Almost every news report I saw in the background, there were people from churches and Christian organizations at work. You could read it on their (laughs) t-shirts. You heard it in the interviews. You saw it on the trucks in the background. When you and I are rich in good deeds, it makes a statement to a watching world. Therefore, you and I are to be devoted to good works. Verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Being devoted means committed, means it's a priority. It's not just something that we just fall into whenever it's convenient. It means we are committed to this. It is on the top of our to-do list to be those who do good works. But I notice another little word with that. Did you notice it said, Let our people learn to devote themselves. And as I read that, I realize that there is a learning curve. There is a growth process. We don't just wake up the day after we come to faith in Christ and just become consumed with doing good deeds. There is a growth process in this. 
It doesn't happen automatically nor necessarily easy. As we were called back there in verse 14 of chapter 2 to be a people who are zealous, who are enthusiastic about good works. Problem is, when we look at the mirror, when you and I wake up in the morning or during the day, we look at ourselves. Quite often, we look at ourselves, we don't see somebody who's enthusiastic about good works. Honestly? It's just we're not there. See, we still have, the Bible says, we still have a sin nature. We have a new nature that we receive when we trust in Christ. We have the nature of Christ becomes part of us. But we still have the old nature. And the old nature always wants to focus on ourselves. And so there is a great tendency for us to not be devoted to good works. So what do we do? How do we learn to be a people who are zealous, who are excited, who are enthusiastic and devoted to good works? How do we do that? He says, let the people learn, but how does that happen? Interestingly, back up in verse 8 of this same chapter, chapter 3, there's another very similar statement, but it is a little different. It says, the same is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. There's that same phrase, devote themselves to good works, but it puts a little word, different word in front of it. Be careful to devote themselves. What that means is, to exercise effort, to give thoughtful care. In other words, being devoted to good works requires intentional efforts. Intentional efforts because it's easily neglected. Because not only is it easy to neglect because there are other things that tend to crowd in and take priority. The fact is that sometimes we just want to quit. See, doing good work, sometimes you just get tired. You ever gotten tired doing good works? Sometimes you get discouraged. It's difficult. And sometimes the people that you're trying to do good works for become difficult. Or the people that you're working with become difficult. Have you ever been doing good works and run into difficult people? Anybody? Yeah, it's like everybody. And we get discouraged and we just say, that's how those people are going to act. Or if that's how what it is to work with these people, I'm done, I'm out of here. And the tendency is we get started on some good works and we're chugging along and then we find ourselves discouraged and ready to quit. We need to be careful to keep going. Give thought intentionally. Be careful to be devoted. So how is it that we stay motivated and stay focused to do good works? And how is it that we learn to be devoted to good works? Interestingly, here in Titus, he doesn't give the answer to that. I think it's hinted at, though, at that little phrase where he says, and let our people learn. I would add this little word, together. 
Pastor Aaron started the service with a passage that actually I had intended to read. And I'm going to read it again, remind us. He didn't know I was going to go there. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us consider how we can, doesn't this sound like Peter, how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. Next verse. So let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day approaching means the day of Christ's return. The reason we need it all the more then as we approach that day is because as the Scripture says, things are going to get worse and worse and more difficult and more difficult as we move towards the return of Christ. He says, brothers and sisters, one of the biggest reasons that you and I need each other, one of the biggest reasons we need to gather together to not neglect being here together in the body of Christ is so that we can learn to be devoted to good deeds. So we can be careful to be devoted to good deeds. It's so that together we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It's so that together we can encourage one another to love and good deeds. That's why we need to be here together. That's why I encourage you to make it Regular, if you're not regular and meeting together every week with the body of Christ, you ought to. But may I also say, it's not just showing up, it's telling us how we're to show up. We're to show up intentionally with the purpose of encouraging others, stimulating others towards love and good deeds. If you have this notion, I don't think most of you do, but just in case you have the notion that what you do on Sunday is you show up to listen to a minister blabber for a while and then go home, that's not it. You show up to church on Sunday as a minister, not to listen to a minister. See, the Bible is very clear. I am no more or no less of a minister of Jesus Christ than you are. We are all ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the things we do as ministers of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ when we gather is we are to minister to one another. So as we come together on Sunday morning, we remind one another of the grace of God through Jesus Christ how He has touched us and blessed us and how He's dealing with us and ministering to us. We come together as ministers of Jesus Christ to encourage one another to serve others. We come together as ministers of Jesus Christ to equip one another to serve other people. So we come to equip one another. So as we gather, I encourage you and you encourage me. And we're, oh yeah, I can do this another week. We not only encourage one another, we, we give insights. You know what? This week I tried this. I did this. Have you thought about? Not only that, we equip one another with help and with supplies. So as we share together, I'm struggling as I'm trying to, as I'm trying to serve my parents or my in-laws or my, my neighbor or my coworker. I'm struggling. I don't have the supplies I need. I don't have the help I need or whatever. We go, you know what? We can help you in that. And we join together and we supply one another. 
That's what we're to do as the body. And we should pray for one another. To pray that we have, that I should be praying for you and you pray for me, that we have opportunities this week to serve Christ and serve others. And that we pray for one another, not only that we have opportunities, but that when the opportunities arrive, that we have hearts of compassion. And that we have boldness. We have readiness to do it. In the process to share the good news of Jesus. We were reminded again this past week as we celebrated Thanksgiving just what a blessed people we are. I hope you took time to contemplate and ponder and give thanks for the abundance of blessings that we have. We are a rich people. 1 Timothy chapter 6 has some instructions for rich people. It says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. He says, rich people, you should be rich in good deeds. Be generous and ready to share. I'm so pleased to say how proud I am of you, my church family, because while we are rich people, you are also rich in good deeds. I hear about it and I see it often. The majority of you are serving Christ in some and most of you in multiple ways. You serve in ministries here within the church, helping one another. You serve in chapel ministries, reaching out and touching the lives of other people. You serve in other ministries out there like CEF and Righteous Rides and other ministries. You serve... Just in the community, volunteering at the hospital, volunteering in, in, in all kinds of places. Doing good deeds, good works to the glory of Christ. I, I'm so thankful. I'm so pleased to see that. You're a generous bunch of folks with your efforts, with your resources, with your time. So I just want to say, keep going. And let's pray that the Lord will enable, us, will enable us to abound all the more. As we come into a new year in a few weeks, that, that next year we up our game. And we do more. That God will open up new opportunities for you and I to touch people's lives so that they will ultimately listen to the message of the good news of Jesus. I think these words from John Wesley are a great motto for every believer. He said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. There you go. He was right when he said it a few hundred years ago. And it's still right today. Father, thank You for this message. We need to hear it. Because the reality is it's so easy for us to get sidetracked. It's easy for us to get discouraged. It's easy for us to get our attention on other things. Where we are to be a people of good works, we get our attention sometimes on ourselves. 
I pray, Father, that our attention, first of all, would be to love You with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then comes what follows is the second commandment, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we are rightly related with You, we will be people who love our neighbor and we will be a people who are rich in good deeds. Father, forgive us for all the ways in which we fail in this and Lord, will You change our hearts and make us more in love with You and then express that love, how it spills out into the fingerprints of love that should be all over our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, as Your love flows through us to them. So Father, may this describe us as a church and us as individuals so that Jesus would be glorified and so that those around us will hear the message of salvation in Christ. For His glory and in His name we ask it. Amen.